Isaiah lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ, and Israel was not doing very well at this time. Uh, Israel was a rebellious people. They were a rebellious land, a rebellious nation, uh, but God loves them. Israel was very prone and very inclined to take the belief systems of the nations around them and bring those belief systems into their life and into their culture and into their lifestyle. And God had told them, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you a different people than all of them. I'm going to give you different language. I'm going to give you different customs. I'm going to give you different laws. I'm going to make you set apart from them in every way possible. And what Israel did was they believed that to a degree, but they allowed syncretously different belief systems to come into their practice, and they lived those practices. So they had lived that way for a long, long time, for centuries. So Isaiah is writing to Israel. He's writing infused by the Holy Spirit, and he's writing to them, and he's telling them about what it is that God does and how it is that God stakes his claim to deity. And we're going to see that in verses 9, 10, and 11. And basically what he's getting at is God is saying, I'm going to stake my claim to deity on the fact that I declare that things will come to pass and that I bring them to pass. And um, I'm going to bring it back to relevance to, to our subject today just by keeping in view of who God is. So I'm starting at verse 9. Isaiah writes, speaking, and the Lord is speaking in this. He says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Um, what God does here is he says, this is how you know that I am God, I, I decree things, and I will bring them to pass. Uh, none of the other gods of the nations around you do this. I am the only one that does this. And the preceding context and the context afterwards shows that Israel is wandering. They're wandering and they wander to affections for these other gods. And God says, I am different. At the end of verse 9, there is none like me. And this is how there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and I bring it to pass. So we want to keep that in front of us. That's our foundation underneath us. Um, but we have a God who sits on a throne, and he doesn't just do whatever he wishes, um, anything on the, on the spectrum of something that's evil to something that's good. Look at the end of verse 10. I will accomplish all of my pleasure. And God describes his pleasure with an adjective, and his pleasure is a good pleasure. That is because we have a righteous God, we have a good God, we serve a good God. And everything he does is good. Everything he does is right. Um, and so we can find comfort in the knowledge that God decrees that things will, will come to pass and he brings them to pass. And everything that does come to pass comes to pass because it is good and God has decreed it and it's right. That doesn't change that it is very, very hard. It is difficult. He is the one who has a mind who sees all things in time at the same time. We, we see things linearly. And God is the one who, who has all wisdom. We have a small amount of wisdom. So from our perspective, we have a hard time understanding some events when they come to pass. But we have a God who, who sees all of time. We have a God who has all wisdom. We have a God who has all power. And so we can trust that, like verse 10 tells us, that God is good.
This morning we're uh, talking about discipline two in build the home. That um, and, and you'll see again how discipline one and discipline two are really inseparable in, in some ways. Um, that the man who shepherds his heart with the word of God um, is a man who also is very concerned for his household relationships. Regardless of the stage of life, if you're a son living at home uh, underneath you know, your parents, all the way to grandfathers, um, you'll even see in our text this morning, um, all those men who love the Lord and who are seeking Him and desire to live for Him are concerned to make an impact on, a spiritual impact on their household relationships. So... As we uh, get ready to just kind of walk through your Bible left to right a couple of different times this morning, let's, let's pray and let's ask God to meet with us while we uh, draw near to Him. Heavenly Father, that is what we want to do this morning is we want to draw near to You and we're so thankful that we have Your words in Your Bible for us to do that. That we are not left to imagine thoughts about what You're like or create and come up with thoughts about who you are like you've come to us revealed yourself to us in your bible and we can know you Uh, we also not only can know you but we can also know what's pleasing to you and we pray as men who trust in your son for salvation that lord you would only grow our desire to be pleasing to you in our household relationships Uh, we need you And we need you even for our study together as we look at your word. Lord, would you help us to um, find humble posture under your word, that we would let your word tower over us and above us and speak authoritatively to us and may may it even comfort us where we need to be comforted and, and where we need to be rebuked, Lord, rebuke us and do all of this so that we might become more like your son. And so, Father, we humble ourselves, we ask for your help, we draw near to you now through your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you see, I'm going to give you a biblical survey of the home. Long, long ago, um, in a small church, not so far away, uh, this church, when it had a different name, we were thinking about how we were going to train men, and um, we knew that the household relationships needed to uh, be at the center of, of much of what we talked about. And so I, I just remember a long ago just thinking, I'm just going to start on page one and I'm just going to keep turning my page in my Bible. And I'm just going to notice where there's, wherever there's relationships, a husband and a wife. Oh, wow. Adam and Eve, that started off quick, you know, and just keep turning and, uh, oh, and then the boys are like, one's killing the other. That's interesting. And then just keep turning the page and it's everywhere. And um, so this is kind of, um, you know, part of the fruit of that. And I I just encourage you, if you're on a read through the Bible in a year plan, guys, there are so many different things that year after year you can make a list of and say, this year, I'm going to watch for, and then you fill in the blank. And you keep, you know, if you write it in your margins of your Bible, or if you have a journal that you journal with, or you blog it, you know, digitize it somehow, I just encourage you guys to do that. Pick a theme, pick a topic, pick pick a couple of them each year, and just read your Bible. Just read your Bible and look for that. Uh, and, and read to shepherd your heart, obviously. That, that's the, the foundation. 
but so that you get a broad sweep in your Bible from left to right of what God says about these kinds of things. And imagine yourself 10 years later. You've read through the Bible 15 or 20 times maybe, and you've looked at these topics over and over. You see them in the margin of your Bible again or, or whatever. Um, what kind of man will you be? What kind of man will you be? Imagine you're, you're a 13-year-old son, and you tell him every year, read your Bible, and, and look for these things, and, and let's talk for them. Imagine what kind of man he'll be at at 23. That's what we're after in this church. Just for the sake of, of, of your own soul, that's what we're after. But we're also after it because you are the spiritual leader of your household, or you will be. So what kind of a spiritual leader do you want to be? Must you be? But we're, even as elders, uh, even more selfish because we're looking for more elders too. And you don't get elders without getting men whose household relationships are in the right place. Right? So this is what we're after. Let's do this. Uh, let's talk through nine different categories from skip Scripture to help us align our view of our households with God's heart for them. So this is the goal. We want to make sure that our hearts are in alignment with what God's word says about our households. Number one, let's just establish God's concern for the household. You got to go back to Exodus 20, verses 12 and following. Exodus 20, verse 12, we pick up with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives to you. Verse 14. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. There's the marriage relationship. So you got a parent, um, child looking at your parent relationship. 14, the marriage relationship. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Another person's marriage is has specific instruction given to you or to the Israelites here. Um you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his car or his yard or his whatever it is he's got. You don't do that, right? And then it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5. I'll let you guys look at that. But again, you have, you have a, a parent-child or a child-parent relationship. You've got a marriage relationship and you've got your neighbor's household relationships that God is concerned of. So first of all, God has very specific ideas at the beginning of his Bible about this foundational um, relationship arena. Early on when God uh, wanted to, intended to put forth his most formalized regulations for his people Israel that were yet to be seen, um, had ever been seen like this, God revealed that household relationships matter to him greatly. I mean, three out of ten of them are very specific to your household relationships. So that tells you God's concerned about it. He was concerned about it for Israel. Uh, go to, let's go to Deuteronomy and spend just a, a little bit of time in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Again, all we're trying to do is just show that God has a concern for the household relationships. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Watch the link here, guys, between discipline 1 and discipline 2 as we talk about it, or the heart in the home. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 4. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently 
so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. There's discipline one, right? Watch how verse 9 ends. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. There's discipline one. And that they may teach their children. So making these things known to their children for Israel falls very closely on the heels of caring for their own souls first. Just go a, a chapter or two, go to chapter six. You're going to get this lesson um, in the new year, Lord willing. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now watch discipline one here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And watch this. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So there's the, your heart and the word of God in a full contact sport with each other. But now watch discipline too. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a hand, a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Can you imagine what the uh, household of an Israelite would have looked like had it been done this way, if it was done this way. Um, that would be a different household compared to the Canaanites and others around. Go to chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. You are to be a holy people to the Lord your God. Israel was commanded to not even let these kinds of mixed households even begin. A Yahweh worshiper and an idolater. Why? Because the generation that intermarries those of another God would have their hearts turned away from Yahweh. That's what he says in verse 4. So the burden in Israel was on the father and on the mother to shepherd their children in such a way that they would not abandon Yahweh as they grew up. Now we know, and we talk about all the time about how discipline one impacts discipline two, how shepherding your heart brings a an impact on your household relationships. But this passage talks about it the other way. If the household relationship is not right, what will it do to your heart? 
It'll lead you away is the principle. So that's something to think about, guys, as you are, you know, looking at your household relationships. You, you can't think, you know, if I, if I don't honor my parents or if I, if I don't love my wife the way that I, I need to, I don't need to really sweat it that bad. Um, or if I don't parent my kids so great. You know, it, it has an effect on the heart. Um, things can go haywire very quickly. Let's go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So it was a generation before that had told this psalmist, Asaph. Verse 4, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So now the current generation is going to tell the next generation. Verse 5, because he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, right? We just saw that in Deuteronomy 4 and 6. So that the generation to come might, eat, might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. God's intent with Israel was over and over, generation after generation. This would just be perpetuated from one father to the next set of sons. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not, what? Shepherd its heart. Prepare its heart. And whose spirit was not faithful to God. Um, so you can see here an inseparable connection between um, a man's heart for Yahweh in Israel and his obligation with his own children. It, it was undeniable. In God's mind, you couldn't pull those things apart. The men were to have a heart that was prepared, um, a spirit that was faithful to God, and the children had to know about it, right? Those two things could never be pulled apart. Let's finish the Old Testament with Malachi, verse 4. Malachi, verse 4. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you one of my most embarrassing moments, because... Uh, do you remember this one? Um, I always think of it, Malachi makes me think of it because I always, in my head, say Malachi, the Italian prophet. I don't know why, but that's just because I was told that at one point. But um, I was a brand new believer, and I, uh, I was 19, and the church that I went to in my hometown in western Nebraska was had uh, 35 people in it. It was a little Southern Baptist church. And uh, one of the guys who was discipling me uh, did the Sunday school for the junior high and the high school. And there was about six kids uh, from age, you know, 13 to, you know, me, 19. And so it was a little awkward. I, I'd never been to church, didn't go. I, I'm new to this. I'm in a, I'm in a weird-smelling basement of a Baptist church in Nebraska. And um, the, my friend who is teaching the Sunday school class, we're in the, <laughs> we're in the Gospels, and, 
and we're just reading, and he's asking observation questions, and he, he said one of the questions, was, well, who is Jesus talking to in this passage? And, you know, these young kids are just sitting there, and nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to answer the question. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at my Bible, and I'm like, I can see it right there. And so I, after a while of awkward silence, I just put my hand up, and the look on my friend's face was precious, because he was like, yes, this young believer, he's stepping up to answer the question. And he said, yes, Scott. And the question was, who is Jesus talking to? And I said, it's the Sadducees. <laughs> it's better if you say the Sadducees. Anyway, Malachi made me think of that. So it's still funny. It's still funny. Yeah, it's funny for you guys to hear. It's embarrassing for me. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch that's that day the one that he's talking about is a terrifying day that is coming verse 2 but for you who fear my name the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall well there's a contrast on that day Verse 3, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. be quite a battle that day. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Elijah is coming. What's Elijah's ministry before that great and terrible day of the Lord? He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, what we know in the New Testament is that John the Baptist, Jesus says, if you care to accept it, was Elijah. Um, and we, we could get and have a, a very interesting conversation about whether or not all of that was fulfilled here. Um, it doesn't sound like it to me uh, because the, that great and terrible day was not any of those days with Jesus. And so um, John the Baptist, Elijah, had some kind of a ministry, and I don't recall anywhere in Israel that the hearts of the fathers were turned back to the sons. And so this leaves many to think that there is still yet another coming of Elijah. Uh, Jesus even, I think, hints at something like that where he says Elijah is coming and already did come. So anyway, that's another issue. Uh, but just so in case you're you know, perplexed a little bit about how that all fits together, don't miss this fact that, that Elijah's ministry, the concern that God has is he's going to come, he's going to smite the land. But one of the reasons that that would prevent him from doing that are restored relationships between fathers and sons. That's what he's concerned about for his people, Israel, when he comes on that terrible day of the Lord. Um, so if the hearts of the children and the parents are not for each other, God's provoked to wrath. Let's, let's go a little bit further. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. 
Ephesians 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I don't know if you can see the parentheses after that that says, but only if they're really wise and you agree with them. Do you see that there? Um, it doesn't say that, does it? Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Um, the fifth commandment is brought under the authority of Jesus Christ for the church. It's part of his instruction for us. And children, this, this one's on the children, right? Uh, we talk a lot about the importance for dad or father to be the one taking the lead. This one's on you guys if you're a son living at home. Obey your parents. That's what you shepherd your heart to do, is to obey, um, to honor your mother and your father. So children need to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel so that they're prepared to do this. Um, and dads and moms, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Dads and moms are to shepherd their hearts so as to not be uh, completely frustrating to their children. So and it's easy when you're a son to be thinking all about how your dad just is that way. And when you're a dad, it's easy to think oh, how my kids just don't do whatever. And, and we've got plenty to work on for ourselves. <laughs> so we just need to do that well. How about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5? God's design in the church is to have men leading the church who have disciplined themselves well to oversee their household relationships. Um, God's design in the church is that the men who lead the church are men who do not play leapfrog over their wives and their children as they engage in the ministry of the church. First Timothy 3, verse 4, the overseer, the elder, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And the argument and the, the, the testing and the evaluation is an argument from lesser to greater. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So it's an argument from lesser to greater. And elders are not the only one. I mean, you can already see this um, as you kind of just sweep through the, the scriptures here. Elders are not the only ones who are supposed to be managing their own household well. Every man is to do that. Um, it's just that an elder needs to be exemplary in the way that he does it. So number one, again, is just, we're just trying to show God's concern for the household. Um, and so it, it's undeniable, I think, as you move from left to right in your Bible, from um, from Israel to the New Testament and to the church, that um, God has high expectations for family relationships, doesn't he? Uh, and for the household relationships going on there. So let's go on to number two. Let's look at one, just one example. There's more than this. I didn't mean to imply that Joshua is the only example of a good example in the Old Testament. But let's look at one Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. We've got to go back to Joshua 24. That's the last chapter of Joshua. You recall Joshua takes over for Moses. Uh, Moses does not get to go into the promised land. But Joshua is the one who will take them in. And they conquer the, uh, the nations. They, they possess the land. They've divided up the land, and it's at the end of Joshua here. And Joshua is the example for Israel. You can see verse 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river 
and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's very concerned not just about his own heart, but his household relationships, that they would be directed to the Lord. And so um, what's going on in chapter four, uh, 24 here is they've taken possession of the land, and Joshua, verse 1 gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all of the people, Thus says the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they, all of them, including Abraham, served other gods. That's just what they did. That's what every unbeliever does in the world, right? Uh, how many non-idolaters did Jesus, or not Jesus, but did the, the, the Lord have to choose to pick one man from to start over and, and create a, a new people? There wasn't a, a non-idolater. There's only kind of one man to pick, and he was an idolater, and so that's what Abraham was. That would have been shocking for a Jew to think about in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, etc. Verse 3. So, um, what's going on with Shechem? This is something that you want to be watching for as you just read through your Bible. You'll see, oh, I read that. I read that before. Where was that? And take some time and chase some of these things down. I want to, I want to tell you why this is important. So when, when Joshua says, come to Shechem, every Jew, every Israelite would have gone, uh-oh. I know why we're going to Shechem. So let me let me help you. So keep your, if you're digital, I don't know how you do this, but stay in Joshua 24, but go back to Genesis 33. I want you to see this because this has a bearing on the household relationship. Chapter 33 of Genesis, verse 18. Chapter 33 in Genesis is Jacob finally coming back and um, he left Laban and now he knows that Esau's coming and he's a little afraid because they have some bad blood between them, but everything's okay. Um, and then 33:18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. It's a guy named Shechem, and he lives in the city. And Shechem, the city, gets named after him, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel, the God, the God of Israel. Now, chapter thirty-four is a devastating chapter of horrible proportions of how what Israel went through as they lived near Shechem and around Shechem. Um, their daughter Dinah, uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah, is is uh, molested, and the brothers plot a horrible plan, and they make Jacob odious in the sight of others because they killed all of the men of Shechem. Now, look at chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob, now here it is, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, all of his sons, all of their servants, everybody, 
Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. They journeyed from there, and there was great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So what, did, what does Shechem mean? You can go back to uh, Joshua 24. What does Shechem hold in the mind of an Israelite? That is where Jacob, our, our father, um, told us that idolatry had to come to an end. They were still carrying around idols. Abraham's idols. Nahor's idols. Laban's idols. Terah's idols. And, and now, Joshua 24, they're in the land. The Canaanites in the land have their idols. So they're living in a, in a world of idolatry everywhere. And he says, everybody back to Shechem. What are they thinking? These idols. And what, what you find out in verse 14 is even after all of that history of going through the wilderness, um, being called out of Israel, being delivered, 40 years of wandering, they finally come in, they conquer the land. What do you find out even once they still are in the land? They're still idolaters, Israel is. They haven't given up the idols. And so Joshua is saying in verse 14, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. They're still idolaters. If it's disagreeable in the sight of the Lord, um, choose for yourselves today whom you'll serve. He keeps trying to drive them to the fork in the road. You can't have it both ways, he says to them. It's either serve the Lord or serve the idols of that your fathers had or that the Canaanites had or the Amorites. Now here's what's interesting. I want you to follow this with me. Verse 16 of Joshua 24. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We're not going to stop worshiping Yahweh because of these idols. For the Lord our God is he who had brought us up um, us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way uh, preserved us through all the way in which we went among all the peoples through whose midst we passed the Lord drove from before us all the peoples even the Amorites who lived in the land we also will serve the Lord for he is our God we're going to be like you Joshua we're going to serve the Lord he is our God then Joshua said to them watch him drive them to the fork in the road again verse 19 you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, and he is a jealous God. Now, why would God be jealous? Because they have no intent to give up the idols. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has, um, after he has done good to you. Then the people said to Joshua, you're right, we'll give up the idols. Is that what they said? What do they say? No, they won't serve. no we're going to serve Yahweh. They don't even address the, the, the idolatry. And so he says, and they say in, in verse 22, you are witnesses, or Joshua says, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. 
Now, therefore, put away, he tells them again, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, we will. They don't say that. They don't think that their idolatry is a problem in serving Yahweh. They can have Yahweh and they can have their idols. They're going to keep serving Yahweh. It's no big deal, Joshua. But Joshua's home is one that stands out different in verse 15. His household relationships, they've decided, he has decided for his household that they are going to serve Yahweh only. That's a long example, but it's really important. Um, His family stood out. He wanted to deeply impact his own household and uh, with service and worship of Yahweh. He made the right spiritual decisions necessary to be able to do that. So and it's an Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. Number three, let's talk about some Old Testament failures. And your Old Testament is abounding with these. Uh, let's go all the way back to Exodus 4. Exodus 4. If we wanted to, we could start uh, with Adam. Uh, but we'll go to Moses. How about this? Very peculiar instance. Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. That's what he's supposed to go tell Pharaoh. (coughs) So this is obviously before he's gone back to Egypt to step in. And then you just get this little one verse, couple verses here. Watch this. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way to Egypt that the Lord met him, met Moses, and sought to put Moses to death. Wait a minute. You told him to go to Egypt, and now Yahweh is stepping in the path and saying, you're dead. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, God, let Moses alone. At the time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. How on earth could this man go back to Israel, the Israelites in captivity and say, the God who made a covenant with Abraham has not forgotten about you. I haven't remembered the covenant in my own home and applied it to my son. But the God of the covenant wants you. And we're go- he, he didn't shepherd his household well. He missed the opportunity, and it was going to be very costly for him. And this is where you can praise God for godly, obedient wives. Right? She saved him. How about 1 Samuel chapter 2? Let's turn there. 1 Samuel 2. The example of Eli. This is why you marry a godly woman, Right? You have no idea how many times she saved you. Maybe. First Samuel chapter 2. You know the story. Um, Samuel is the little miracle baby of Hannah. Uh, and she promises to dedicate Samuel to the, the tent, the tabernacle. And he lives with Eli the priest. And Eli the priest has... Uh, grown sons. And so what I want you to watch is how at the in chapter 2, uh, Samuel is put in this juxtaposition with Eli and his boys over and over. Watch this. Verse 11. Then Elkanah, that's um, Hannah's husband, 
went to his home at Ramah, but the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So here's this little boy serving Yahweh before the priest. Contrast, verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And their custom was whenever anybody brought the meat, they would just take the meat for themselves. They wouldn't go through the sacrifice and the, the ritual the right way. And if anybody protested that, verse 16, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then one of the sons would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. I know you come here. Can you imagine? You're in, you come to the tent to worship and the priest is bullying you. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. They didn't care about that. They just wanted the meat. Now, in contrast, verse 18, here's Samuel. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. So here he is. He's serving the Lord in contrast to what these guys are doing. Um, look over at verse 21. The Lord visited Hannah, and she uh, conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. And here's the contrast. Now, Eli was very old, and he had heard all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? There's a need for a savior, right? A mediator. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for the Lord desired to put them to death contrast now the boy Samuel was growing up in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men and then a man of God comes to Eli and says um, you're done your family's done um, drop over to verse 29 therefore the Lord God of Israel declares I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever speaking to Eli but now the Lord declares far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. For the days are coming when I will break um, your strength. Oh, I missed verse 29, didn't I? Mm -hmm. My bad. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? And why do you honor your sons above me? There's the key statement. You're honoring your sons above me. That's a helpful clarification because you can look at all of how important the household relationship is in the Old Testament. Um, but it's not that important that you would honor your household relationships above the Lord. With all that emphasis on that, God is not looking for household members to honor one another over him. We'll talk about this more in number seven here in a little bit. Um, and God ended this priestly family. And he ended them to work out of another father's line for the priesthood. And that priest became Samuel. But watch what happens with Samuel in chapter 7. Turn there. Remember, we're looking at bad examples here, right? Chapter 7, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now watch chapter 8. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, verse 3, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Now watch the effect on the nation. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said, Behold, you're old and your sons don't walk like you do. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And remember what happens next is uh, that, that's not right for them to ask for that. God knows they're going to do that. But they, th that's something wicked for them to desire in this way. So can you imagine this? The nation was chafing under Samuel's sons. So Samuel, growing up in contrast, watching every day, Eli and his boys. Oh my goodness, look at that. What neglect. He grows up, he has his own sons, and he neglects his own kids. And the effect of them on the nation is the nation has a wicked choice for a king. Can you imagine your own mismanagement of and poor shepherding of your family to be tied to a, a horrible choice of God's people? That's what happened. That's sobering. So Samuel's ministry lacked the integrity that it could have had because of his house his household was out of order. And so it's a an example of how a lapse or a failure at discipline two actually impacts discipline three, the ministry. Uh, let's go to First uh, Kings eleven. I'll skip the Second Samuel seven. That's obvious. What David did with Bathsheba uh, that threw a big old neglect or a big old uh, problem in the path of his family. Uh, his family would cause the split of the nation. Let's go to First Kings chapter eleven. You just can't not look at the train wreck of um, Solomon's life. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. What we've read already, you know that's not right, right? Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall... They associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their idols. Solomon held fast to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Verse 9, now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. Six times in verses 1 to 4 and in verse 9 do you see the word heart. And again, what the impact there was was the, the household relationships that he had with his wives, princesses, and concubines um, led his heart away. And so how could we summarize number three here, the Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household? Look, in the Old Testament, you just can't miss the fact, you, you can't not conclude that, that the household is unimportant. It is important in God's mind. In fact, it appears to be the decisive place, the decisive arena, relationally speaking. Things go really well for the people or even the nation if things are going well in the household. And things go terrible for a lot of people when the household relationships are a mess. When you see all of that and you just kind of read through your Old Testament and you look at those cruddy relationships everywhere, um, you understand in Malachi why Elijah will come and, and he's going to fix the way that Israel relates to each other, parent to child. Number four, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. Let's talk about the ease at which God is forgotten in the household. This is, this is really sobering. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. 
Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. And he gives you houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat, and when you are satisfied, that's when you need to watch yourself. So all of the blessing is yours, and that is when you need to watch your heart. He says to Israel, there's something to think about there about prosperity and and the need to be really careful watching our own hearts. Then watch yourself <coughs> that you do not forget the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's when you watch yourself. And, and where are they going to forget the Lord? Is it over in some uh, is it over in the the the, the temple of some some idol somewhere? Is that where they're going to forget the Lord? No, they're going to forget the Lord in their own house. They've got everything they want. They've got a maid in the shade. They've got a better um, American dream than, than maybe we do. And they forget the <coughs> Lord there. The same thing is said over in chapter 8. Look at this, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when you heard, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have to shepherd your heart carefully, even in your home, even if you've got it really good. The ease at which God has forgotten in the household, that's a category you need to have. You need to be watching. How very sad that the home becomes the platform where God is forgotten. Number five, the impact of one person's faith on the entire household. We need a little good news, don't we? Let's go to Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Cornelius. Cornelius, I believe, was a, um, obviously he was a Gentile, a Roman, uh, Italian uh, he was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. And I believe that, um, and you can go back and listen to these sermons way back in Acts when we were in Acts 10. I, I believe Luke's case in, in chapter 10, verse 2, is, is to point out that Cornelius was an Old Testament believer. He was a devout man, he says in verse 2. One who feared God. Luke doesn't just throw those kinds of terms around to describe unbelievers. He was a believer in Yahweh in the Old Testament sense. He's a proselyte. And so what God is doing, I think, in chapters 10 and 11, and this is why it, there's two chapters devoted to this. Chapter 10 is Peter being convinced to even go to a Gentile's home. Chapter 11 is Peter telling the story all over again to the Jews back in Jerusalem because they can't believe that he went to a Gentile's home. And what, what is God doing in Acts? He's, he's ready to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now he's ready to go to the remotest parts of the earth. So he has to show how that happened and how it was a real stumbling block for the Jews for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. The first one that God led Peter to go to, the first Gentile that he led him to go to, was not an unbelieving Gentile, but a believing Gentile. He was a devout man. You don't describe an unbeliever that way. He feared God, and with all his household, he feared God. So he had had an impact on his whole household. So you know the story. Uh, Peter has the vision. He finally ends up going. Let's take a look at uh, chapter 10, verse 22. 
uh, they said Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. You don't call unbelievers that. Well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews was directed to by, and, and a holy angel came to him. He's a believer. To send for you to come to his house and hear a message from me. What's the, what's the challenge, though, with Cornelius? He, if, he's a, if he's a believer in Yahweh, that means his faith is a Messiah anticipating faith. Right? Messiah's coming. Well, what doesn't he know? He came. And so what is God going to do with this Gentile believer who knows that Messiah's coming? This is why this is in, the, in Acts. It's to show that God cares about his Old Testament believers who have not yet heard about Messiah who is Jesus of Nazareth. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. Verse 23, they want to hear a message. On the next day, he got up and went away with them. Some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So he's just using his home. Everybody get here. Come in. Peter goes in, he starts to preach the gospel to them. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them also. Speaking in tongues, uh, exalting God. Uh, let's baptize these Old Testament believers in Yahweh. This is why the, the account in chapter 10 is not concerned to show that he believed and he repented and therefore he was baptized. He didn't need to repent. He needed to hear that Messiah's name was Jesus. And he had not been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He might have been baptized in John's baptism, like in Acts 20. I'm giving you a lot more than just a household thing here. But this is really important uh, to understand what's going on in this transition book of Acts. And what's the outcome? The whole household is impacted by one guy. It was impacted by one guy before he heard the preaching of Jesus. Same thing happens in chapter 16. Go to chapter 16. This is Paul on his second missionary journey. He gets to Philippi. He looks, his, his practice in whatever city he goes to is he looks for uh, a synagogue to go to. He gets to Philippi, which is the Roman, this is now uh, the Macedonian colony. This is like, a, this is the European continent now that he's on. So he's farther away than he's ever been before. And he's looking for a synagogue, and there isn't one in Philippi. And so they go down to the river, verse 14. A woman named, um, actually verse 13, on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we, uh, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. He's never been there. What is she? What is, what is she? She's a worshiper of God. Your New Testament writers don't throw those terms out there and, say, and mean, well, but she, he was, she was not a believer. So she is an Old Testament believer. She believes in Yahweh, but she has a, a, a Messiah-anticipating faith, but she what? She doesn't know who he is. So the Lord, oh, and she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, does that bother you? Where does it say that she believed and repented and then was baptized? I mean, don't, this shouldn't bother you at all. She's a worshiper of Yahweh. She's already a believer. And the Lord opened her heart to help her understand Jesus of Nazareth. And she was baptized. 
She and her whole household. Why her whole household? Because she had made an impact on them as well. Right? A little bit later in chapter 16, there's another case that comes up. Look at verse 22. You know, Paul is beaten and Silas are beaten with rods, thrown into prison, right? Look at verse 29. And he, uh, then, you know, the story of earthquake, every door opens up. Uh, the Roman soldier who had been listening to them singing hymns in the night comes. He sees all of the doors open. He's sure that all of the prisoners are gone. He knows that the penalty that Rome will execute out on him will be his own death. So he takes out his sword to run himself through. And Paul says, verse 29, he called for lights. Uh, verse 28, do not harm yourself. We're all here. He called for lights. He rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, what to him? Believe. Because he's not a believer. <laughs> so believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Meaning, you believe and your household believes and, and you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all of those who were in his house. So he lets them come into his house. And, and Paul and Silas start talking more to them about um, explaining a little bit further the gospel. And he took him that very hour of the night, verse 33, and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. He brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. His whole household believed in God with him. That's why all of them were baptized. These passages are not passages to demonstrate that you baptize children or infants. Um, they were either households that were already believers in Yahweh, and they just needed to hear about Jesus, and they needed to be baptized in his name. Or like the centurion here, he was not a believer, and he and his whole household believed, and they were baptized. Okay? So the point here in number five is just one person's faith made an impact on the entire house. It's amazing. Um, now let's talk about number six, the attack on the household. Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. This is very sad what is said about the last days. Realize this, that in the last days the difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, disobedient to parents ungrateful, unholy, unloving, un irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among those kinds of men are those who, watch this, enter into households, and they captivate weak women weighed down with sins. These are women who don't know how to shepherd their heart to think rightly about their sin. They're weighed down by them. They, they, they are not able to confess them in a way. They don't understand the gospel well enough to, under, to be able to confess it, to be <coughs> forgiven, to, to be set free from that. They're led on by various impulses, these women are. And verse 7 applies to the women. They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're curious, but they're not getting it. And the reason they're not getting it is because there are these wrong kind of men who have come into the households and have captivated them. They are weak in their faith women. 
And what should be the question on your mind that you're scratching your head on? Where are the men? Where are the men? The household can, guys, this is, this is what's really important to understand, that, that a woman left to herself because she's not cared for by her husband, she may go look for spiritual input. She may do it on Facebook. She may go buy books. She may listen to podcasts. She may read blogs. But she's going off looking for some kind of help, and she's maybe captivated by the wrong kinds of things. Uh, this can happen in any generation no matter how sophisticated it is. Go over to Titus chapter 1. Same thing was happening on the island of Crete. Verse 9 of Titus 1 is the um, qualification for an elder and what he is able to do, that he is um, to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that as an elder he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's the two ways that an elder uses the word of God in the church. Positively to exhort the the church with sound doctrine, with sound teaching, um, and then also to refute those who contradict the sound teaching, who re- contradict the elders. Why do you need to? Why do elders need to know how to do this? Verse ten, because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Why? Why? Sh- why do they must be silent? Why must they be silenced? <coughs> Because, verse 11, they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, we prove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, etc. So, in other words, the enemy is looking at the household as prime target, prime real estate to get in and to cause trouble. And again, you should be scratching your head going, we're... Where's the men who have sound doctrine? Men, as husbands and as fathers, you need, to, you need to have sound doctrine. You need to understand what the Bible teaches about key doctrines in it so that as um, influences, spiritual influences from the outside try to penetrate your home, now it's not going to be some guy who's going to come in and probably teach a Bible study in your home. But do you know what your wife is looking at on Facebook? Do you know what she's reading Do you know what she's listening to? And are you trained well enough as a a godly man, as a biblical man, that you could say, wait a minute, that sounds funny. That's not right. That's on you to do that. And then there's another layer of protection for the church called the elders who uh, hold fast to the faithful word, who can exhort the body in sound teaching, and who can refute those who contradict. So there's the protection for the household in the church. First line of defense is you guys. You need to shepherd your heart well. You need to know sound teaching well enough that you are able to um, catch things quickly when, when wrong ideas come. Send your kids to Christian school, and I guarantee you they'll come home with funny ideas. Okay, They're going to get funny ideas based on what they thought they heard you say. And they'll say it one day, and you'll go like, "Who? Are, where did you get that nutty idea? Well, you said it, Dad. What? I never said anything like that. When in, so I'm, what I'm trying to say is, funny ideas are going to get in your home anyway. From you, even though you may not have communicated that way, how it was heard, uh, Christian school is not a, a, a solution. Public school, they're going to come home with funny ideas. Uh, funny ideas are going to get into your home. What, what kind of man are you? 
You need to be the right kind of man able to see these things and catch it. So there's an attack on the household. You need to have a category for that. Um, it's going to happen if it hasn't already. Number seven, households, though, can actually become an obstacle to the gospel. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. We're almost done. You guys are doing great. This is a, this is a long one to be able to walk through and work through. Matthew 10. We finish at 11, right, Scott? Yeah. 11.15 <laughs> if you need it. Okay, perfect. 11.15. That's awesome. Oh, we got plenty of time. Matthew chapter 10. Watch what Jesus said in verse 34. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And you should, after everything we've looked at, think, man, that is scandalous. How could the Savior come and do that? Doesn't God want the family to, to be together? Well, keep going. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Here's the problem. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will gain it, will find it. The gospel of Jesus invades into a family, into one life, into a household. And then what happens next is so important. So maybe a son comes to Christ or a wife comes to Christ or a husband comes to Christ, but one person comes to Christ. And then what happens next is so important. That saved individual is called to bring the gospel to the rest of his family, the rest of the household relationships. And he is supposed to think about Jesus rightly in this sense that he will not, if it's a, if it's a man who's saved and is in his household, that he will not put his wife above the gospel. He can above Jesus. He cannot love his wife more than he loves Jesus. He, he can't love his children more than he loves Jesus. So what happens next is very important. God wants the family, but not by just everybody loving everybody more than the gospel. Um, family relationships are not above the gospel. And you have to be careful because there's some thinking out there in the in the among evangelicals where the, the, the family has a place of primacy even above the church. And look, it is important in God's mind, but it is not above. What God is doing in this world right now is making a new people in Jesus. And when they gather together, it's called the church. It's not called the household, the family. That's not to say that your family doesn't matter. It matters. I mean, I hope you can see that through the study. It matters. You have to have your, your household relationships in the right place. But sometimes your household relationships can become an obstacle if you love. And Dad, I'll just, I'll, Dads, I'll just tell you this. I mean, it, it can get challenging parenting your kids. And as they get a little older, you may, just, you may love comfort in your relationship with your child more than you love the gospel. And so what you'll do is you'll love your children above the gospel and so you'll kind of hold back because you know that the more you press on the gospel the more conflict comes or you might do that with your wife or or whatever your wife might do that with you uh, and the point is the gospel has to have supremacy over every relationship even in the household and sometimes the gospel takes a family and splits it and that's pleasing to the Lord because he's saving one 
And Lord willing, you pray for that family that the whole household will get rescued. Um, so the gospel is at the apex of God's redeeming plan. The family is not at the apex of God's redeeming plan. The gospel and him forming the church is the apex of what God is doing in the world. And your household family relationships fits into that and under that, and it is very, very important. But it is not everything. Because sometimes one believes and the household rejects him. That's what happens in most of the world. Okay. So in other words, the Philippian jailer and Lydia and Cornelius, they are not the um, only example of what happens. Praise God when that happens. And you pray to that end all the rest of your life that your whole household will come to faith if, if that's not the case for you. Um, but it may not end up that way at all. Uh, how about, we'll skip the rest there in number seven. You can read about Jesus and how he looked at his own family uh, in Mark 3 or Matthew 12. Number eight, leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Let's go to Ephesians 5. I want you to watch this in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 25 to 33. We'll just look at 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives. Now watch, there's a comparison. Love your wives in this manner, like this, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So your love for your wife requires you to look away from your relationship for a moment and to look over to Christ's self-emptying love in the gospel. So you want to love your wife the right way? Look away from her for a moment and say, now how does Jesus love sinners in the church? Oh, he gave up his life. He died for her. Now I see what I'm supposed to do. So if you want to have a, a wife and love her well, you need to understand the gospel better. Even better, right? Uh, look at verse... Um, Let's go down to verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, we are connected together in union, in a, in a membership, in a body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm talking about with reference to Christ and the church. So what he's talking about here is, there, there is a unity in the church, members to members with the, in the body of Christ, and the husband and the wife become one flesh. So not only do you, as you love your wife, need to look away from your wife to the gospel, now because of your union with your wife, your, your oneness of flesh, you need to be able to look away from that to understand, and to understand that, you need to look at the unity of the church. So what's the point? The point is, if you don't know the gospel very well, the self-emptying, pouring out of his love in the, at the cross for you kind of love. You're not going to know how to love your wife very well. And if you don't understand the church and the unity of the church, that's the illustration he gives. You're going to have difficulty understanding your union with your wife. So in other words, what is required of you as men is that you know the gospel and you need to know the key doctrine of the church because it impacts how you love your wife. You can't not care about those things. If the church is not important to a man, there's going to be an impact on the way that he views his wife. Um, he'll, he won't be able to understand that as well. And then one last example, a, a New Testament model marriage, Priscilla and Aquila. Let's go to Acts 18. Verse 1. 
Paul's second missionary journey as it finishes up. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. He was reasoning in the synagogue and doing work together. So Priscilla and Aquila become friends. Look at verse 24, what happens. A Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, he came to Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila had been there, had come there as well. He was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And see, this is evidence that in this time period in Acts, that there were all kinds of believers that were out there who didn't have the full picture yet. And so one of the things that Acts is doing, that Luke is doing, and why God has it in your New Testament, is to show you God's concern to finish the picture for these people. Can you imagine how many believers died um, not knowing these things? Many of them did. But, but he was careful to show that God was uh, pinpointing different places, different times to help people complete the picture. Verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here's a husband and wife team working together to help another believer uh, be discipled and to grow more. Um, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, that's over towards Corinth, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now here's what's interesting. In... Uh, Chapter 18, verse uh, 26, Priscilla is named first and Aquila is named second. In Romans chapter 16, when Paul mentions them in verses 3 to 5, uh, in fact, we've got to turn over there. Just go a few pages. Romans 16, and we'll finish with this. 16, verse 3 to 5. Greet Prisca, that's the shortened form of her name, Priscilla. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So Paul, almost every time when he mentions them, he mentions the wife first. Um, in the New Testament, and most of the pattern was uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. It was Joseph and Mary. It was Ananias and Sapphira. Bad example, but... Ananias and Sapphira but for Paul it's always Priscilla and Aquila the wife and then I, I think she must have made an impact on him um, must have been something unique there in a, in a godly way um, but look in, in chapter 16 the, the household for them was a platform for the church so here they are as a husband and wife team back in Acts 18 helping another believer grow in their discipleship and that man was very effective from that discipleship and then here they are in Rome meeting in a house and there's the church that meets in their house. Their household was a platform. It was a place where it made sense for the body of Christ to come and to fellowship and to be taught and to be motivated together to live for Christ. It was the right arena for that. That's your goal. That your household relationships would be just the right kind of place where all you would want is for people to come in and that they would just thrive being in your home. That's the goal. That's a New Testament model marriage. So 
big nine different categories here we walk through. Um, to ignore or be indifferent to household relationships will put a man completely at odds with the scriptures, I would hope you'd see. But a man who's committed to taking care of his wife and his children or a son who's concerned to live in humility under his parents, um, that is a young man who is very concerned uh, and aligned with scripture, has his heart aligned with scripture. Any questions? Clarification? Give you a lot today, guys. Thank you for letting me do that. I'll stick around if any of you want to talk or ask questions. We can do that, but let's close in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word that it is is clear. Um, and Lord, we just touched on little spots here and there. Um, there's so much more we could have looked at in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Would you guide these men and lead them, help them to see the to hear your call to them from the scriptures to to care for their household relationships well. Whether they are young and not yet married and still living at home, uh, let them rise to the occasion and be pleasing to you. And uh, Lord, for those of us who have others that are in our households, Lord, we pray that you'd be merciful to them because we know what a mess we can make of things at times. And our walks with the Lord sometimes are very sketchy. And we pray, God, that you would grow us and that we would um, make good choices, and that we would shepherd um, our households well. So, Father, we are in great need of you. We feel our need more than ever as we study these things. Uh, Be merciful to us and to our households, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.